Papermen meet such interesting people. Coming up on the Media Project, Alan Shartok, Barbara Lombardo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith giving you some insight into media issues of the week. We'll talk about the cutbacks in editorializing on the biggest chain of newspapers. We'll talk about a shameful editorial in the Wall Street Journal. And we'll talk about, yes, executive chefs next to newsrooms. Those were the days. The Media Project is coming up with that and more next. They wallow in corruption. Papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption. Crime. So the media project is underway. If you hear rustling paper in the background, it's Dr. Shartok actually looking at this old-fashioned thing, a newspaper. You know what that is? It's yeah. amazing. It's nice to hold in your hand. And and what is that particular piece of newsprint you have there, Alan? Well, my very, very good and dear old friend, Judy Patrick. Who's sitting uh, right here next to me. Yes, yes, she's next to you, not to me. <laughs> um, it had written a story. It says, Shartok Penn's memoir of Cuomo years. Can you imagine? And what was the date on that story? That date was October 15th, 1995. How about that? Just <laughs> a little that, bit ago. Now, there will be people who think, there will be people who think that 1995 is a long time ago, but not me. It's in the last century. <laughs> it's hard to believe. I, I think it's very close. Isn't it hard to believe that 1995 was 20 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it <If> only. <laughs> but it shows the power of print. I mean, after all these years, 27 years, I went into the closet, dug it up, and brought it in. You can't find that online anywhere, so yeah, well, treasure it. <laughs> I'm going to treasure it. I and the Cuomo years were not the Andrew Cuomo years. They were the Mario Cuomo yeah, years, yeah. and Mario is quoted extensively in the story. What we call the good Cuomo. Ah, so here we are at the Media Project. Alan Shartuck, Judy Patrick, Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith. And we are here to give you a half hour of commentary and analysis on media issues, including old-fashioned times when newspapers were potent. I have a question about that, since you said it's not available online. So if people want to see stories that were printed before there was a digital age, can go to they the, go to uh, the microfilm in the library. So mm -hmm. they'd have to go to the Schenectady Public Library, maybe? Correct. That, yeah, it wouldn't be I on the Daily Gazette website. It. Yeah, people are going to be and wanting And it wouldn't this. be indexed either. Right. I used to go to the Donnell Library and look up July 25th of every year in recorded history. 
because that's my birthday, don't you see? Mm -hmm. And so, um, and that's why I brought the paper. You are so it right. It is and also, I'm so by the dumb. way, my daughter's birthday, which is why I have a little note to myself here that says GYYS card. That I'm going to buy my daughter a birthday card when she, she has a good dad. Isn't that great? But it's one of my former reporter Michael Schreiber's birthday today. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, folks, we're really going to get to media issues here. We are. But you know, archiving is one of the issues that papers yes. are facing now because how often do you archive a web page? Because they change every hour. Are you saving the archive of that? And going forward, I think media librarians have a real challenge ahead of them. Well, I'm concerned about how even the digital papers are being saved. There might be an e-edition saved online somewhere, but as news companies change their carriers or servers, whatever they're called, can you find archived papers anymore? Uh, that's a good question. A lot of especially newspapers have, have lost a lot of it, and especially because you don't have the staff to do the archiving. There was a time when I was the editor of the Times Union, and initially there was so much money that we were, we put there people- There was so much money. There was so much money. <laughs> uh, there were guys who were working on the production there? team, and production had changed, and so these guys' <laughs> jobs were shifted to be archiving stuff back to 1986. That is digitizing stuff so that you could have all of this material available digitally. But of course, now those jobs don't exist. Perhaps the most misunderstood issue in newspapering has always been when somebody complains about a headline on a newspaper article and we have always said, you know, I don't write those headlines. Somebody else writes the headlines. That's true, right? That's generally true. Yeah. Although in recent uh, years, reporters yes. have sometimes... <laughs> we uh, made them do that, too. <laughs> yeah, we made them do that. We, we asked them to try to write a sample headline, but they would never know how the page is going to be laid out so it wouldn't work in print. You yes. Know? So anyway, on this wonderful birthday gift that I got from Judy Patrick, the headline is, Chartok Penn's Memoir of Cuomo years, uh -huh. and then it says in subprint, Spunky, Spunky, W-A-M-C Chairman, <laughs> also, is also Professor TV and Radio Commentator and Columnist. I've already said this. I, I didn't write the headline. The headline, <laughs> the headline writing spunky. is a really challenging job, whether you were writing it for print, which was really tough, is mm -hmm. still really tough because yeah. of the need to make it fit, and to find active verbs and all. So. You know, they had a lot of words they were trying to get into that line, yeah. and they wanted an adjective, which you didn't really need, and spunky was short, I think it's sweet, great. and clean. It gives us a new name for uh, Professor Chartok. <laughs> well, the old name was Spunky. Actually, the old name was Sparky. Uh, the reason very close. for that is that AC, my initials, AC, yeah. spark plugs. Oh. So the people at New Paltz took advantage of that and started to call me Sparky for, for years. Professor Sparky. Well, now we know, folks. So you what heard you think, it here sparky? first. <laughs> You can share your thoughts on what ought to be Alan Chartok's nickname with media at WAMC.org. Here's a listener, by the way, Jeffrey has written to us to say, I love the media project. I've been listening for years. This is for Ro Rosemary's not here today. I love Rosemary's unapologetic appraisals of the anti-intellectual movement and the uneducated idiots that fear intelligence. And this person goes on about unguarded and thoughtful comments of the panel. That is us, unguarded and Thoughtful, huh. at least unguarded. So everybody has an opinion, and that's yeah. one of the topics we need to talk about today because Gannett's by far the largest chain in the country, even bigger than, uh, than when Barbara was editing a couple of Gannett newspapers. Gannett has now decided that they will cut out editorials. Editors are not going to be engaged in writing editorials. Fascinating. 
So why don't we start with you, actually, Barbara, since you used to write editorials in a Gannett newspaper. What do you think about this decision? Well, this was kind of heartbreaking to me, to tell you the truth. And at a small paper, I thought and still do think that the leadership that can be offered by thought-out, informative, persuasive editorials, that that's a service to the community. And oh, there's an election coming up. How should I vote? Or, hey, that big project that's being planned for downtown, is that a good idea or not? And people want to have information that they can rely on, credible information so that they can make decisions. So part of that is what the news pages would provide, and part of it is what the newspaper's position might be. Now, that said, depending on who owned the paper at a given time, there were restraints on editorial commentary, especially on national issues and sometimes on local issues, and that's problematic. But I took a lot of pride in my career of having won you know, state and national awards for editorial writing. I took it seriously and didn't do pot shots. And um, No pot uh, shots? What's the fun in that? Uh, Sorry. Dr. Shartok, you don't uh, necessarily agree with this. Well, no. I, I am somebody who editorializes every day with my partner in the morning at 4 o'clock, David Gustina, and I say what I think, and I think that's the way you have to go because that provokes thoughts on everybody's part. There was a time, Judy, during your editorship when the Gazette didn't endorse candidates, right? That's correct. And there was a time when we had four editorial writers. I can wow. only imagine how many you had over there at the uh, Hearst never Castle. Never that many, actually, at the oh. Hearst Castle. <laughs> <laughs> but I fear this is just a financial decision. They don't want to pay someone to think hard about an issue and formulate an opinion about it. It's a really, really sad Well, plus it does alienate readers at some level. I mean, you're offending people. Isn't uh, it meant to? I think so. I think sometimes that's great. Provoke people. Get conversation going. Here's what the editor in Charleston, South Carolina, the Post and Courier, he says, Strong opinion pages perform a vital public service by fostering a dialogue and providing a space for different perspectives. People don't always agree with our stands on issues, which makes sense. Our duty is to help spark constructive conversations and ensure that citizens have a place to make their voices heard. Well, you know, that's so self-serving. Oh, Spunky, yeah. why do you say that? <laughs> <laughs> so when I was at the Daily Gazette, we had a long tradition of not endorsing candidates. We thought that's it right. was up for the voters to decide one way or the other. And then there was a decision, well, we are going to start endorsing candidates. And I can tell you from the person who runs that department, it's a ton of work to decide what races you're going to endorse. And for a local newspaper, you want to endorse local candidates, and there are a lot of them. But what if you get really lousy mayors in a place like Schenectady, for example? Never. Right. (laughs) What if you get Frank Ducci over and over and over again? You know, we did. Which you did. Which you did. But it's more than endorsing candidates. That's just a small window of it. I mean, there are 12 months of the year, 365 days to write an editorial. And sometimes it's hard to find a topic, but they do a really good job. They're essentially reporters on their own. They do some fact-finding, a really good editorial writer, and they bring wisdom to the process in a way that the reporter and the editors on the, on the news side just can't. But now what about the criticism that I've heard from people? Why should you have a right to uh, express your opinion in such a powerful way as to have this open page available to you just because you have enough money to own a printing press? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but but also because the person who's doing that, like Barbara, is steeped in the news, is steeped in what's happening locally. But mm-hmm. what if Barbara, for example, I know this is not even possible, but what if Barbara, you know, had a 
fiscal relationship with her community and wanted to. Now, I'm not look, you mean I'm if looking she's at make I'm looking, money from yeah, what she stands. No, no, to no write I'm about. looking at her face. Like, you don't not, want to make an advertiser mad or an oh, yeah, owner oh, mad? Yeah, it could be any of those things. It oh. could be also, you know, I made a little investment in my position in this area. Would help my... <laughs> <laughs> I did have 100 shares of Saratoga water before it went uh, <laughs> belly up. That's about the only investment I've ever made. Well, that could happen at any point, but that's a violation of the Code of Ethics. That should oh, be... heaven forbid well, that, that there's been a violation of the Code of Ethics well, that should be... in journalism for you people. That should be brought out. <laughs> people should know about that if that's the case, you know, and good for a reader to write. Letters to the editor are very popular reading, and editors actually really like letters that take the opinion page to task because that indicates that there is a back and forth. It establishes your credibility when you well, publish Well, speaking those. of credibility, I do have a concern that there are newspapers for various reasons where an editorial, if there still are editorials there, are not well done, that they're not well thought out, that mm. they don't enlighten anybody. They merely provoke without serving any greater good. And I know I've seen one weekly paper where there's an editorial that I totally disagree with, and I was debating whether to say, hey, I'd like to write a rebuttal to that editorial, and I decided to not engage. Ah, because of your previous position as a newspaper um, editor? I wasn't sure what purpose it would serve, uh -huh. so I was hoping that people who them. read it and felt like I do would say, oh, this is wrong, and other people are going to say, oh, this is really clever. You know, one of the hard things, speaking of endorsing in local races, one of the places where it could be most useful to have an editorial for people to make a judgment about is one place where it's very difficult to get a point of view, and that is in judgeship races. Oh. You know, candidates for judge. I'm so glad you're judge, raising this. I was, it was on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, because candidates for judge almost never say anything of value in an editorial board meeting, and so it's very hard. You end up, does this person seem to have judicial temperament or not? How do you know how to endorse? I have the same concern, and there's actually a candidate for a judgeship in the area that I'm supporting and intend to reach out to the area media trying to help that person do exactly what you're saying, meet with editorial boards. But how much they can say and whether there's going to be interest in that is a tricky situation because they have limitations on what they are allowed to talk about. Sometimes judges even end up owning newspapers. Hmm. Hmm. The owner of the Berkshire Eagle, I believe, is a judge. A retired judge. judge, isn't he? Yes. Oh, well, okay. I think well, the way we oh well uh, <laughs> retired, but but I I think the way we cover judges running for office is a bunch of baloney. I think the idea, oh, we can't talk about our opinions. Oh, all we can do is tell you our qualifications or our credentials. This goes from the town justice all the way up to the Supreme Court. We need to take a harder look at how we cover judges. We need to stop giving them the pass of oh they can only talk about where they went to school mm -hmm. or we can take a picture of them with their. So family. what do you recommend, Judy? They yeah. can talk about more. What they can't do the canons say that they shouldn't give the impression of not being an impartial jurist. That's all. And so they can still take a position on an issue without implying that they are biased, I would think. Well, Judy, you were a major editor of the Schenectady paper. You obviously had a chance to talk to some of these candidates for judgeships. How did that go? Well, when I started back out back in the late 80s, I said, oh, you can only tell us where you went to school. Okay. I mean, I, I, I bought it. Yeah. But now, from where I stand now, I'm saying, 
Well, no, I want to know where you stand on this and that, and they're not going to tell you. But you can also look at their decisions on different things and their commentary, and, and you'd have to read up on the ruling. It would require more research than you can do in a simple interview when you're getting what you think is a feel of somebody from an interview where everybody's on their best behavior. Yeah, it's true. And when you're at a smaller paper, you just don't have the time or the resources to do that. In the early 90s, I was the editor of The Record in Troy, and God, I remember that for four years. And on a particular day, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan came in to meet with the editorial board. And it happened that on that day, I was the editorial board. It was just me. Uh, because I know the, that feeling. Yeah, yeah, right. There was the only person. And he came in clutching a book of architectural history under his arm. He was going to see the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall, which he had never before seen. And I, I made him brand muffins because I came from Newsday, a big, rich paper that had an executive chef that always had food for oh the my God. VIPs. Yeah. <laughs> you, if Mario Cuomo went to Newsday, the chef would make him this fine luncheon. So I'm, I made brand muffins. This is so cool. Uh, <laughs> Where else would you have heard about this except on the media broadcast? Uh, where every time I've had the opportunity to be here, Rex has never brought in brand muffins. <laughs> I'm so sorry. And Dr. Shartok used to give us bagels, too. That's okay. Yeah, well, that was before we had to cut back. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, and he said this wonderful thing. He, I'll never forget his his commentary. He said, you know, uh, 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 wonderful, wonderful city, Troy. Wonderful city. I, my, we have friends oh, here. It was on the, Jimmy Stewart on, was on there. The Very well of, uh, done. Very on the well faculty done. of Russell Sage when I was in Governor Harriman's staff. And, and, and Troy is wonderful because Troy has benefited by having bad government. Troy's always had bad government, he said. <laughs> and and they couldn't draw down the federal funds to tear down downtown. That's why Troy's still beautiful today. <laughs> and it's a great theory. And I later saw it. He articulated about Rome, New York, also. So it's one of his favorite theories, the late Senator Moynihan. Well, I, I will never forget the day that I brought Senator Moynihan in here, as long as we're telling Moynihan stories. <laughs> and, and we were in the room right over there, and I had all of the Legislative Gazette students there. And he said, I'm only going to be here for a half an hour. I said, no, sir, you promised an hour. And he said, no, I did not. And by the way, what is your doctoral dissertation on anyway? <laughs> Excellent. All right, we have to move on. It's too bad. We've, we've pretty well exhausted that topic and then some. Okay, it's been hot in recent days. Too uh, not damn only, hot. Say, too damn hot everywhere. Uh, you know, record heat waves across Europe, fueling fires, terrible heat. 40 days above 100 degrees in Dallas, Texas. No end in sight to this. And yet, in the global extreme heat, a study reveals that the national TV networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, mention climate change in just 32% of the segments that they have run on global extreme heat. Only 32%, even though we know, we know that climate change is behind this. Why is it so hard for that to be included in the stories? I don't understand that. I'll bet Judy knows. Well, uh, I'm glad at least we're getting it in 32% of the time. The other issue may, I mean, the, the networks have so little time. I'm concerned that something's got to get cut. So maybe they think this is accepted information. This is, you know, B material that they can cut out. I don't think it is B material that can be cut out. But that may be the rationale. Or I see on the cable stations, they do a much better job of making that case. But for the network news, they only have in a 30-minute show, they probably only have 20 minutes of yeah, On the cable news, though, you might be hearing it at 5 a.m. if you're <laughs> up like Sparky 
spunky spunk. <laughs> so you may not actually be hearing it. You know, 30-something percent didn't sound great, but if you think, every, you know, one in three times so that you're not beating people over the head, yeah. climate change, climate change, climate change. It's Even, only an existential you know, threat to the globe, you know. Why well, beat them over the head? Uh, <laughs> it depends. Some stories it just might fit, and some stories it may not fit. There's a really good news look, you know, the past couple of weeks is the fact that, you know, Biden went to the Middle East and they were talking about increased oil production, although they didn't really want to talk about it very loudly. That's a really good hook at a time when you're seeing these huge increases in temperature. So that makes for a great way to present it. But I'm seeing lots of stories about melting glaciers, about mm -hmm, wildfires, sure. and maybe there's so much information they just can't include it. I'm not trying to excuse them, but I really would like to see more information about exactly why this is happening. I'd also like to hear a little bit more from people who, who continue to be climate deniers. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, you don't really want to hear from them in the sense that it's both sides. Right. right. I do not. It's true. But is that still out there? Or are we all basically agreed that this is the case? It's science. I, so even though one in three may not be bad, as I said a few seconds ago, the more it's repeated, the more people start to believe it. So, you think, so though, it could help. It could help. But do you think, though, that the reluctance is sort of a remnant of the both-sidism in American media? That is, is the fact that the news media nationally are not beating readers, listeners, viewers over the head with this because they're trying to appeal to the Republican viewers because the stance of the Republican Party now has moved away from denying that climate change exists to just putting it off. You know, let's just not do anything now, which seems to be, by the way, Joe Manchin's posture. And so <laughs> is a that... secret Republican. We think even though he's a Democrat. <laughs> yeah. Is, is that maybe just a, an effort by producers and editors to say, uh, you know, we don't want to push this too hard because uh, we want to be fair to those who don't think we ought to be doing anything except drilling for more oil. I'm just concerned that that's in the back of the heads of some of these producers and editors saying, let's just not push this too hard and offend too many people. Possible? Definitely possible, especially when you have Republicans beating this drum so heavily and so often. And if you watch Fox News, that's primarily what they talk about. They talk about the Republicans talk about, you know, Biden's policy about about reducing and drilling and they want to drill, baby, drill. I don't understand it either. I, don't they have to stay alive and don't their children have to stay alive also? Yeah. Uh, you know I mean? Yes. Well, did I say that? You did. You did. You are so right. And the problem is, of course, understanding how to cover things that aren't rational in that sense. I mean, the rational decision is do something about climate change, oh, right? Sure. Yeah. Because journalism is ultimately about giving people information from which they can make smart choices. How do you deal with that? when the choices that people make, politicians make, are not, in fact, rational. Mm. It just makes it very difficult to appear to be unbiased and fair. It can make a reporter's head explode at times. Uh, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, earlier this year, we saw a lot of anti-electric vehicle talk on the conservative stations, and then for no reason. And killing the electric vehicle rebate was part of the climate bill that got killed. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you about attribution. Since I think we on the panel agree that science has proven that climate change is a real thing, when the newscasters are talking about the heat in Texas or wherever, Oklahoma, or the melting Greenland ice, do they need to say this is due to climate change, comma, according to scientists? Scientists agree. The scientific community 
agrees, or do you just say this is due to climate change, period? I think the initial reference could be human-caused climate change, the same way that nowadays we say Donald Trump's big lie that the election was stolen. Oh, that's a great example. It's mm-hmm. like accepted because it's Real true. journalism has come to say that. Of course, that's not what Fox News It took News a long says. time to get there. Right, but that is what is now said. It is a lie. The problem is that the <laughs> you have a certain segment of the population, 40%, who pay no attention at all to any of that. And the people who do pay attention are so turned off by the relentless bad news that there is, in fact, news avoidance, which we've talked about on this show before. The increasing number of people who are just simply turning away from the news because the news is so Do we grim. really know that? I mean, do we really know that people are turning away from the news? Or as I suspect that there have been many people who have been away from the news for a long time. I don't know if we actually have statistics. We certainly have a lot of people writing about it, saying, <laughs> uh, in fact, I helped some people with their op-eds. And I have a psychologist who said that she had a client who came into her therapy practice who came up with a term. She said, I have democracy anxiety disorder. She was so worried about our democracy, this patient, uh, that she was developing anxiety, classic anxiety. And so the psychologist, therapist, urged her to take a break from the news. Judy had an interesting point last week about one of the values of the old-fashioned newspaper was it was there once a day for you to read, and you didn't have to just swallow it constantly. Unless right? you lived in the Chartok house, in which case it was there five times a day because they bought five different newspapers all day long. <laughs> right, or classically, the morning edition and the afternoon yeah. edition. And then even for broadcasts, we had the nightly newscast from Walter Cronkite or Huntley and Brinkley, and you know we, we did it. They condensed it, and then we moved on with our day. Now it's almost like a habit or to get you to come back and see, is, is there any news on the January 6th committee? What witnesses are they going to call next? And so you're checking every 15 minutes. It's mm-hmm. almost like an addiction to the news, more so than breaking away. And people at some point saying, I've got to break the addiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I don't think that's unhealthy to take a break for a few hours or even uh, to take a vacation. But I don't think moving away from the news ultimately is the right solution for people. So we need to talk about one particular incident in the news in recent days, which is the controversy over a 10-year-old rape victim, which story was belittled by the Wall Street Journal. Editorial page uh, referred to the notion of a 10-year-old rape victim who had to get an abortion in Indiana because the law in Ohio, where she lived, was so restrictive, uh, referred to it as a story too good to confirm. Talk about bad editorials. You know, that I thought of that, Judy. When I read that and had I was thinking about that story and had seen the piece about Gannett cutting back on its editorials, the first thing I thought was, how about an editorial on this subject, which should be a na- it's a national story. Yeah. yeah, and it's pointing out how bad the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal is, by the way. Uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal has some really wonderful reporting, but ultimately it is still a Rupert Murdoch property. Rupert Murdoch, uh, perhaps one of the two worst people in the world, uh, <laughs> well, alongside, you know, Vladimir Putin, because he denies America hope, because his demeaning of the American journalism landscape has so affected America, which is really the hope of the world. And so I think Rupert Murdoch is uniquely qualified for a place in hell. I had another thought about this story that, if you don't mind, having to do with local news and how if this reporter in Columbus had not been in the courtroom for the day that rape suspect was arraigned, 
none of this would have become a story. A very good point. We wouldn't know that it was true. The importance of local news in making this a story. And it it was the only reporter. There was only one. Mm -hmm. And the Columbus Dispatch is a a paper, a mid-sized paper that has fallen on hard times very much, you know. Unlike all other newspapers. Unlike, it's very much like all the other newspapers. Where they have private chefs. It's, uh, (laughs) those were the days, huh? Can you imagine? Yeah, I can't imagine. I saw that at USA Today when I was running the Gannett paper in Saratoga and went down to USA Today where we were providing free staff for Uh them to be able to get off the ground. And they were eating chef-cooked meals. And real <laughs> it was a plates. long time ago. People. It wasn't leftover it was long, pizza long from the ad department. Long ago and far away. I'm not bitter about that. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll hope that the executive chef at WAMC picks up where we leave <laughs> off here. That's all we have time for. That's why. Alan Shartok is here. Barbara Lombardo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. Thanks to our producer, David Gustina. Thank you, Spunky, for bringing David into this. <laughs> I was going to say, you could call me Spunky. We could. We shall. And thanks to you for joining us this week on The Media Projects. Let's give three cheers of freedom of the press. <laughs>